1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse uh, 10 through 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 10 through 22. I want to make sure that I... Oh, yes, okay. Can we all stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? Verse 10. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, that he does not fall. No temptation has overcome you or overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things with the Gentile, which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not warn you to become sharers, and I do not warn you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot take partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Uh, this is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Again, tonight we are going to consider how the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. And we will do so using one of the best versions or verses that highlights how the Lord's Supper is a means of grace and also how it explains the nature of the Lord's Supper. Uh, so this evening, I've got three, I think, brief points for you. Number one, the context. First Corinthians chapter 10, and the verse that really highlights the nature of the Lord's Supper and highlights the fact that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace is found in verse 16. Now, this is going to be, and I apologize for all of you who are uh, maybe already tired, this is going to be kind of technical, and so we're going to work slowly through it together. Verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing? That word is important, a sharing. So if you're taking notes, maybe circle it or write it down. A sharing in the blood of Christ is not the bread which we break, a sharing, there's the word again, in the body of Christ. Uh, this may be the most important text on the nature of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. Notice that Paul, he asked two questions, and they are both related to the Lord's Supper. First, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing 
in the blood of Christ. And second question, is not the bread which we break a sharing, there's that word again, in the body of Christ? The answer to both of these questions is a resounding yes. Yes, the cup of blessing is a sharing in the blood of Christ. It is a sharing in the body of Christ. Uh, what cup? Well, the communion cup, the sharing cup, the fellowship cup. We're going to talk about that word sharing in just a moment. I think the question that we might have is simply this, though. What does this mean? In order for us to understand the meaning of this text, it's important for us to understand the context in which this passage is written. So we're, Paul is talking about a sharing in blood, a sharing in body, and it's in the context of well, let's find out. First Corinthians chapter eight and verse one. This is going to go quickly, but I hope that you stay with me. The apostle Paul addresses that the church of Corinth, they are dealing with a specific matter. Now, uh, how many of you all know that whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, we most often go to first Corinthians chapter 11, don't we? Don't we normally go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and, and we read the passage of Paul that we are to examine ourselves? Uh, we read the passage of Paul where Paul says, the Lord Jesus said on the night that he was crucified, uh, do this in remembrance of me, so on and so forth. What's the context leading all the way up to that, though? Well, it begins really in, in chapter 8 and verse 1, and it begins concerning the matter of food, here it is, that's been sacrificed to idols. So when we get to chapter 11, uh, the context that we always read concerning the Lord's Supper, it's been built upon this issue that has arisen in the church of Corinth where Corinthian believers have been eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. He says in chapter uh, 8 and verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. We're eventually in chapter 11 going to get to the food of the Lord's table, that, that unique food that we partake in as it has been sanctified or set apart, blessed by God for the remembrance of the doing and dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we all together? From that chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul then comments on those who are apparently challenging Paul's knowledge of God. How many of you all know the verse, knowledge puffs up? But love does what? Knowledge puffs up, but love, what? Comforts, right? There's, there's, why does he say that for? We take that verse and we, we often apply knowledge puffs up to those who actually know something, which is incorrect. Paul was being accused of not knowing God. Paul was being accused by those who said they know something that Paul doesn't know anything. And so Paul's response to them is, knowledge puffs up, but love comforts, corrects. Paul was really trying to bring to, the, to, the, to their minds, to their understanding that I love you. This is why I'm bringing this correction to you about your eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. They are challenging Paul. Verse 4 of that same chapter, therefore, here he goes, as to the eating of food, Offered to idols. You see that there? You are looking at that in chapter 8, verse 4. We know that an idol has no real existence. That there is no God but one. 
So Paul gives this lengthy treatment of this matter all the way to chapter 11 and verse 1. And again, what's the matter? The Corinthians are partaking, they're involving themselves in pagan rituals where food is involved. This lengthy treatment is dealing with, again, food that is sacrificed to idols. Well, what's, what's the issue with food being sacrificed to idols and Christians being involved in that kind of paganism? What's the big deal? Well, if you have a certain kind of Bible in chapter 10, it will say idolatry. It will say that the, the point of chapter 10 is idolatry. The city of Corinth was a large cosmopolitan city. It was also a religious melting pot, meaning that there were many among them, the Christians, who worshipped and served other and many false gods. They, there were old religions that were growing right next to new religions, and most of the residents could, they were accommodating this paganism. Paul is calling the Christians not to be accommodating. Paul is calling the Christians not to be tolerant. The Christian was to be distinctly different because we do not worship other gods. We also do not accommodate false gods. The Christian confesses that there is but one God, one true and living God, as our catechism says. So therefore, Paul's lengthy treatment of the issues is to correct the believers in Corinth and to instruct them in Christological monotheism, that is, to worship Christ and to worship Christ alone. By this kind of Christological monotheism, the church, they would be distinguished from all the other false gods that were being worshipped in and around Corinth. See what Paul is doing? He's calling them to be distinct. Worship Christ. Do not worship these false gods. Do not have anything to do with their paganism. It's idolatry. He brings the law to bear upon their hearts. Idolatry being the second commandment. Do not commit idolatry. Do not worship false gods. In the process of Paul correcting the practices of the uh, Corinthian Christians, several Practical matters, they, they rise to the surface. Now, I, I'm going to slow down a little bit here. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 3. Oh, 1 through 13, excuse me. In 1 Corinthians, these practical matters, Paul refers to a number of different matters, but, but here are some of them. And I'm, going to, I'm going to just say the verse where they are. Paul refers to ancient, ancient Israel... As the example of privileged people who abused their privileges. They were privileged people who abused their privileges. And in verse 7 of that same chapter, who committed idolatry. You remember, they had been freed from Egypt. They had been free to worship God in the desert as they have constantly requested. Pharaoh let them go. And it was not long before they had been set free that they urged Aaron, who was to be a priest in the house of God, they urged him to fashion and to shape a God of gold for them to worship. And they bowed down and worshipped this God, saying, this, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. They abused the privilege of having God as their God. They abused the privilege of being rescued from 
slavery and, and brought into freedom. And they committed idolatry. Paul is saying to the church of Corinth, don't make the same mistake. Don't do what your fathers did. In light of this, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to learn from their bad example. Verse 6, he urges them to not crave evil things. Verse 7, to avoid idolatry. And also to avoid immorality. Verse 8, to avoid trying the Lord. In verse 9, to avoid grumbling. Verse 10, these are all of the things that Israel did in the, in the desert. They craved evil things. They worshipped false gods. They committed immorality. They tested the Lord in the wilderness. And they grumbled. Did they not grumble? Do you remember they, they sat they said, In Egypt we sat around pots of meat. And here in the desert we must eat this. What is it? Every single day. You know what manna means? It means what is it? Here we are stuck eating this. What is it? I don't know if any of your wives or mothers or husbands or fathers have ever created for you a what-is-it meal. <laughs> but they were sick and tired of it. Verse 11, Paul admonishes the church to learn from ancient Israel. Verse 12, to take heed. Verse 13, to be reminded of the faithfulness of God in the midst of all temptations. Then as we move on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 to 33, Paul deals with Paul deals with almost insignificant matters. So he has dealt with idolatry for a lengthy period of time, right? But then when he gets to verse 23 of chapter 10, he deals with things that are really kind of, of, of insignificance, but are really a matter of conscience. You can do this if you want to. It's not going to be that much of a big deal, whatever your conscience tells you to do. The main priority that Paul is shooting at is do not partake in paganism because it is idolatry. In verses 25 to 27, Paul makes the point that they are free to eat such meat. What meat is that? It's meat that, that maybe has been purchased in the marketplace but was previously used as being offered up to false gods. Paul says you could buy that kind of stuff, not even realize that it was being offered to a false god, and not partake in that paganism. Does that make sense? You're not committing idolatry if you do that. You are committing idolatry, idolatry if you are partaking in the paganism of worshiping another god and being involved in or eating the meat there in that false ceremony. But if you're just buying it in the marketplace, you have no part of that ceremony. You're not committing any kind of sin. But sometimes it's best to just avoid that whole scene altogether. So that you don't commit sin or prick someone else's conscience, including your own. Are we all together? So Paul has gone from laboring to really emphasize the moral law, do not commit idolatry, to the things that are more of wisdom choices. If you're buying meat somewhere, we'll talk more about that. Verse 24, he encourages the church that in whatever they do, they are to make sure that they are not seeking their own good. And that's the main point. In matters of, of conscience, make sure you're not seeking your own good. If you're seeking your own good, then most likely you might be in sin. Seek what glorifies God. Seek what honors God. Verse 31, 
give no offense to Jews, give no offense to Greeks or the church of God, verse 32. At this point, again, he's dealing with things that are a matter of indifference and not a matter of idolatry. Paul's treatment on this matter uh, explores, he explores various scenarios in which the Corinthian believers might have found themselves in, which is a matter of conscience. Verse 14, he says, as a part of a pagan religious meal, you might find yourself there. Or, verse 14 again, food that was purchased in the market, but for eating at home, not in the ritual. Verse 25 to 26, food that is offered when one, when food that when one is offered uh, when eating as a guest in another's home. So you could be eating in someone else's home and not realize that the food that you're eating was previously offered to a false god in a paganistic ritual. You're not in sin if, you, if that particular thing type, uh, might happen. And in verse 27 to 30, <clears throat> Paul gives advice for each context. Now, there's been a lot of information so far. I hope that you're all with me. The section between 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, and chapter 10, verses 23 through 22, or something else, they deal with idolatry. Verse 14, chapter 10. Beloved, flee from idolatry. It's not a matter of indifference. Flee from idolatry. It's, it's God's command to all people. Flee from idolatry. I hope that you're seeing this as the context here. Having mentioned the fact that idolatry or that idolatry has taken place in ancient Israel, Paul now deals with contemporary idolatry in the context of the church members at Corinth. So, so Paul has talked about the, the idolatry of old in Israel. And now he's saying, and something similar is seeming to be taking place in the church of Corinth. That's chapter 10, verses 14 to 22 that we read at, at our opening. Again, idolatry. Some of the Christians in Corinth, and we use that word lightly, Christians, they thought they were free to continue to participate in pagan sacrificial meals. And Paul corrects their wrong thinking by bringing the moral law to bear upon their conscience by saying, flee from idolatry. That's the context, right? Number two, the nature of the Lord's Supper. Uh, chapter 10 and verse 16. Let's all turn there and look at that. Is not the cup of blessing that we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? In this passage, Paul sheds light on the nature, that's important, the nature of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, by proving that participating, now listen to this, participating in pagan sacrificial meals is a form of idolatry that must be avoided. Now, why? The important word is sharing. Sharing in the blood, sharing in the body. Why is that important? What is this sharing, or another word is participation? Uh, another word is called communion. What is the participation, the sharing, and the communion? What is... What's the importance of all of this in terms of how it is connected to the blood and body of Christ? <clears throat> it's helpful, again, that we were, we were trying to understand a word like sharing or communion or uh, fellowship, that we look in the scriptures 
to find places where that word is used again. Especially if we can find that same word used again in the same book by the same person. The word for sharing or communion or fellowship, you might have heard this word before, is koinonia. Koinonia. And it is used elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. And if you would please turn there so that you can see this. Paul uses the word again, koinonia. God is faithful. Through whom, now listen to how he uses it, you were called into fellowship or koinonia with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. One theologian has said that this koinonia is not simply or primarily the experience of being together as Christians, which is shared by the status of being in Christ and being shareholders in sonship derived from the sonship of Christ. Meaning this, this sharing, this fellowship, this communion that we are about to partake in, brothers and sisters, who are we communing with? Who are we fellowshipping with? What the theologian is saying is that Paul is not making the point that our communion is primarily with each other. Or to say it another way, Paul is not making the point that our fellowship, that our communion, that our sharing is a horizontal but rather that it is a vertical sharing. Rather, it is a vertical communion that we have when we come to the Lord's Supper. Just as the fellowship of the Holy Spirit found in 2 Corinthians 13, 13, meaning participating in the sharing out of the Spirit, so the fellowship of His Son, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, means a, com- a communal participation in the sonship of Jesus Christ, which means this, when you have been called out of darkness and into the light and into fellowship with Christ, what does that mean? Do you right now have a true and sincere relationship with Christ? Let me ask you this way. Does he know you? And do you know him? And if you can say, yes, he does, and yes, I do, then there is a real communion. There is a real fellowship. There is a real sharing of life that you and Christ have with one another, and it's real. Could you, though, say to your friend, hey, meet Jesus? Oh, you don't see him. He's he's right here. Well, no, you can't do that. But but at the same time, you also say, "But, but I do have a real intimate fellowship and relationship with him, right? Uh, You are right now turning from sin, aren't you? You are also right now loving truth and loving God, aren't you? Well, let me ask you this. How and why? It is because you have been given a new heart. And because because you have been given a new heart, the Spirit of God that lived in Christ now lives in you and you right now have a true and present relationship and fellowship with Christ and evidence of that is that you are turning from sin. You are turning to Christ in His righteousness because there is something that has taken place in you that is true, that is real. And in the same way that you fellowship with the Son because of your new relationship, 
you fellowship with the Son at this table when you come and partake of the blood and body. Am I getting ahead of myself? I am. This fellowship that we have at the Lord's Supper has an emphasis that is vertical, primarily vertical. Yes, we are all eating of one bread that has been broken up for all of us to share in. Yes, we are all partaking of one juice, one cup that we are all sharing in. But the primary focus, I, I want to make this clear, is not between you and me. The primary focus when we come to this table is between us and God. You, no, He is fellowshipping with you at His table. This is why this table is unique from all other meals. This is why this is the Lord's Supper and not a happy meal like McDonald's. It's a unique meal. There is a unique fellowship at this table. There is a horizontal aspect, of course, here. That is the emphasis between us together. We're all doing this together. But the primary emphasis at this supper is the fellowship that we have with Christ. And that's Paul's point. And why he seems to be uh, laboring to argue against what? Against idolatry. Because there is a communion that is living here at this table. There is actual contact that is taking place at the Lord's table. And when we commune with pagan rituals and in pagan ways, Paul goes on to say, I think in verse 22 of that chapter, then we are sharing in the cup of demons. Does that make sense? He's saying there's real fellowship and communion happening here. But if you're participating in, in communion or sharing in cups that are being devoted to false gods, then you are actually fellowshipping and communing with the devil. Do you see how Paul is making that point? There's a real substance happening. There, there is a real uh, impact that is taking place on your soul. And if it is towards Satan and his demons, then your soul will be affected. But if it is towards Christ at his table, then your soul will be positively affected. Contact again with who? When we come to this table... <clears throat> We are having active communion in the life, death, and resurrection by the presence of Jesus Christ himself at this table. You mean a real presence? Yes. There is a vertical, yes, but it's a top-down reality that is connected to the blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ that takes place at this table. Paul's not emphasizing that we should be together per se when we take the Lord's Supper, although that is true. That's not the emphasis, although that's true. But rather, there is real koinonia with the blood and body of Christ at his table. And how does he liken it to? What is he comparing it to? He's comparing it to those who have real fellowship when they participate in pagan, idolatrous Rituals. <clears throat> they are participating in the fellowshipping of demons. How? Again, there is something that is happening with their souls when they fellowship with demons. They, let me say this to bring this home for you. There is a real effect in our fellowship and communion, listen to me, when we fellowship with sinful things. 
There is a real effect upon your soul when you fellowship with sinful things, whether that be, now let me not be too legalistic in how I say this. Let me be careful how I say legalistic too. What you hear will have an effect on your soul. What you see will have an effect on your soul, whether that be positively or negatively. What comes out of your mouth and how you are relating it to whatever you're talking, it will have an effect on your soul, which is why we are to anything that is lovely, anything that is right, anything that is good. Think on those things. Why? For your soul's sake. For the sake of your soul. Do you think that you can live in this world and be among the world and live like the world and not have your soul affected? Paul is saying, I don't think so. He goes on to say in Corinthians, bad company corrupts good character. Don't be fooled. He goes on, to, he even says earlier, anyone who thinks they are strong, take heed lest you fall. What is the context? You think, Corinthians, that you're going to be able to involve yourselves in paganistic rituals and be strong and be okay? Let him who thinks he is strong take heed lest you fall. Be careful. Beware. It will affect our souls to the good or to the bad. So, it is when we fellowship with Christ at his table. In the way that he has commanded that our souls will be benefited in beneficial ways. Grace is being delivered to our souls through the Lord's table for the glory of God. I said to my wife before I preached, I'm only going to preach for 15 minutes. I said, never say that as a preacher. Lastly and thirdly, fellowship in the blood and body, question mark, and we will finish. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, is not the cup of blessing that we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Answer is yes. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Yes. This passage could be read this way. Present communion derived from, meaning coming from, or depended upon the blood and body of Christ has its source at the Lord's table. Or, to say it another way, the source of communion with Christ is his blood and body. The source, what, how are we fellowshipping with Christ? Through his blood and through his body. How are we sharing with Christ? How is koinonia taking place? Through the blood and through the body of Christ. We share in that which we partake. We enjoy fellowship with Christ. How? Through his blood and through his body. If Paul is talking about a present communion with the blood and body of Christ, and if Christ is no longer dead, and nor is he dying, then communion that he is referring to is with the living and exalted Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did that make sense? Let me say that again. Paul's talking about present communion. He's saying right now, there is a vertical communion that's taking place. And if it's not taking place with a dead man, because Christ is not dead, it must be taking place with a living man. Therefore, when we come to the Lord's table, we are communing with the living 
risen and ascended Christ, the Lord of glory. This present communion that we are about to partake in, listen, is with the living and not the dead. Don't you go, let me say that, uh, let me correct myself. Didn't you used to go to the graves of your loved ones and speak to them as if they were right there? And they were not. I can remember as a young man being in, in college, junior college at least, when I was supposed to be in class, I would go to my, my grandfather's grave, Faustino. And I would sit there and I would talk to him as if he was actually right in there and as if he could hear me. He's not. And he wasn't. When we come to this supper, when we come to this table, you are communing and you are fellowshipping with one who is alive with one who is alive forevermore. And he is not aloof from you. He is present with you. One theologian said, the fact that Paul here refers to the sharing of the cup and the bread as a communion of the blood and body of Christ proved that the Lord's Supper is something more than a, than a memorial meal. We're not just remembering. For the believer shares in all of the benefits of Christ's sacrifice as he partakes of the tokens by which it is recalled, but not reenacted. We are not re-sacrificing Christ. Instead, we are partaking in all of the benefits that Christ has won for us in his doing, dying, rising, and ascending. We are rejoicing in all that Christ has for this, for us. What is the point of all of this in closing? The point being made from this text is that bread and wine, bread and the cup, are signs which signify present participation or present communion in the present benefits purchased by Christ's body and his blood. Christ has earned for us that which we will enjoy in just a few moments. And it is given to us where? At his table. Spurgeon said, At this table, Jesus feeds us with his body and blood. Koinonia, of the blood, of the body of Christ, means spiritual nourishment is brought to our souls. When you come to the table tonight, your soul will be nourished. When you come to the table tonight, you will presently participate in all of the benefits that Christ has won for us when we come to the table. And that's why we say this table is a means of grace. When we participate and partake in the Lord's Supper, we commune with Christ. That is why we are not to partake in the table of demons, because we would be partaking with demons. It nourishes our faith. It sanctifies us in our faith. It's not a means of special grace, but it is a special means of grace. For through the Lord's Supper, we receive something from Christ. The benefits of his blood and body. Reverend Bobbing said he not only gave himself for his own, but he also gives himself to his own. So now, brothers and sisters, may we stand.